hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As usual, a huge shout out to our sponsors, Seeds Here Now, you know them and love them, all the hottest breeders and the latest drops at the best prices, offering a guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Why would you shop anywhere else, guys? If you get it from them and you're not happy at the end of it all, hit them up, they'll sort you out. Seeds Here Now. Thank you so much. Likewise, a huge shout out to our friends at Copet Biological Systems. You know them and love them. They've got the industry leading predator and predation technology. You can see the bugs working in front of you as they go red. That's if you grab the Spidex Vital. Those bad boys get rid of any spider mites you got. And trust me, there's nothing better than getting on top of a problem before it begins. Check it out, Spidex Vital, incredible product. Thank you so much, Copet. Huge shout out to our friends at Simply Souvenirs who have got our friends in the UK stocked and sorted. If you're after hand-selected boutique breeders, as well as some big names to satisfy all your needs, check out Simply Souvenirs. They've got a range of smoking accessories, dabbing tools, whole bunch of extra things to keep you covered all with the best customer service in the game check them out big shout out to our friends at simply souvenirs and a big thank you to our friends at pulse grow sensors you surely are aware of pulse you probably already got them but if you don't you need to get one guys because the reality is a lot of variables in the garden you can't see or feel. VPD, like you don't know what that is most of the time. Get a pulse sensor in your garden. It'll increase your quality, increase your yield. It'll help you get your grow room pumping on all cylinders. Check it out, guys. Thank you to Pulse for supporting the show. And last but not least, check out the Patreon, guys. If you want unheard episodes, additional content, we're giving away genetics all the time for free. Check it out, guys. www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. Huge shout out to the Patreon crew. On this episode, we've got a much anticipated and awaited interview with the man himself, Gypsy Nirvana. You know MC Boutique, I see mags, so many other things. Here to talk about a very illustrious history, some cool stories, so much more. Let's get into it. Alrighty, friends, we are back for another big one. And on this episode, we have one of the most prolific seed distributors in cannabis history, the man behind IC Mag and Seed Boutique, and the guy who gave countless breeders their start. A big warm welcome to Gypsy Nirvana. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. How? How do you do? <laughs> I do well, my friend. How are you doing this morning? Um, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm sitting on this lovely balcony as, as it's dawning in the uk looking out over blue sky by the looks of it uh things are green and uh happy to be here i guess uh, kind of uh flattered that somebody would want to ask me some questions about my illustrious and and many faceted life <laughs> you nailed it on the head many faceted is to sort of not even do it justice. But a question we love to start off most interviews with is, what have you been smoking on lately? Uh, Moroccan hash. 
uh, it's kind of what I started with when I first started smoking cannabis way back in uh, the Stone Age, <laughs> 1975, something like that. I think I was 15 and my brother had some Moroccan hash and we rolled it up in a spliff with a bit of tobacco and we smoked it. And uh, it seems that you kind of revert back. Maybe I'm going through a second childhood because <laughs> after all this, these heavy uh, indicas and, and uh, you know, soaring high sativas, uh, to, to come to some sort of regular daily constant and keep a kind of uh, a level head as much as you can, uh, I come down to what I started with, which is uh, Moroccan hash. So, yeah, uh, I, actually, I've got a little bit I can show you. I'll get a little bit piece of hash somewhere. Ah, <laughs> oh, beautiful. And how does that one compare to the stuff you have in your childhood? Do you think it's similar or quite different? Yeah, it's it's not too strong and it's not too mild. We used to have much milder stuff called slate Moroccan back then. That was the cheaper stuff and that was harder. But this is a kind of soft. You can just break it off and crumble it up like that. Very simple. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I've been a consummate cannabis stoner user, whatever you want to call me, uh, most all of my life. And I find that finding something that is consistent on a daily basis and doesn't knock me up too high or put me down too low keeps me on a kind of level that I can cope with <laughs> is the best for me. It's when I mix them up that I have the problem. Uh, particularly a couple of weeks ago, I was over in um, Amsterdam interviewing a few uh, quite well-respected breeders and uh, people in the seed industry over there, Soma being one of them. And he knocked me out with some of his Soma salad uh, bubble hash. So, you know, you can really overdo it uh, on cannabis. You know, the, the amount of THC you consume, uh, everybody's got, you know, their tolerance levels. And uh, for me, um, I try to keep them not too high and not too low. <laughs> but as soon as you you try something extra strong, uh, you're gone. You know, I literally, I was out cold for uh, about a minute, came round again. <laughs> but in that day, I tried all these other varieties uh, too, of weed and hash, so it kind of knocks you out eventually. It doesn't matter how, how strong you think you are or how much you can combat the THC. <laughs> Everybody has limitations. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I guess as a follow-up, in general, would you say you're more of like a flower guy or you're more into your concentrates? Uh, it depends. You know, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> you know, if, if there's nothing going, you know, a lot of the times uh, users don't get to choose. They just uh, They just take whatever the guy has that, has some, you know, whether it's a dealer or a friend or a grower or whoever that passes you some weed or you grow it yourself. Um, that's what you cope with at the time. It's not as if we have the choice of selection of some areas of, say, the United States do with all their dispensaries and what have you. So generally, I don't know, I, I find hash is more compact, so it's much easier to... Um, 
to deal with. Uh, weed is generally smellier and <laughs> and uh, and more bulky. So it depends if you're travelling or not. Generally, for travelling, hash is the best, and uh, it's nice to have a bit bit of both. If you're at home, you know, to have as much choice as possible. Certainly, I can appreciate that. I would be interested to hear, though, what's your thoughts on the current UK scene? You know, these days it, it feels like, by all accounts, it seems to be really flourishing and um, the law enforcement is taking a bit more of a relaxed approach to it. How do you feel about the UK scene at the moment? Well, I don't know. I'm not really with the in-crowd or if there is an in-crowd. I live a quite a quiet life these days after the mad shenanigans of the past decade. Um, I've kind of settled down with uh, my wife and two kids. I don't get too involved. I go to bed at nine o'clock at night, you know, and <laughs> I'm up early in the morning like now. <laughs> so I'm not so sure which way they're going. I'm not really involved with any uh, organisations. I never have been. I've never been a member of any organisation as far as I can remember, uh, no unions, no political parties, uh, no, maybe a book club once. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, take me back then. What was your childhood like? What was the progression like for you to get into cannabis more seriously? Well, try and encapsulate it in a in the shortest space of time as possible. I was born down the river from here where I am in Kingston now, in Chertsey, in a field, in a caravan, in a rainstorm. And uh, I grew up kind of on the fringe of society. I went to a state sink school after being thrown out of a boarding school. Um, yeah, and they said I was maladjusted. Uh, they and when I was in my early teens, they took me to for psychological evaluation or whatever. And then they gave me these pills. I think it was haloperidol or something like that. And it made me go a bit kind of veggie and a bit bonkers. And I didn't like it. And yeah, sure, it calmed me down, but it turned me into a vegetable. So I didn't like that. It didn't take them for very long. And about that same time, my brother was experimenting with Moroccan hash. And that seemed to work, uh, calm me down. I don't know, when you go through your teens, you, you get a, a big release. I think it was testosterone or whatever. Makes you, uh, you know, more prone to explosive episodes or whatever it is. And so they took that as being some sort of um, uh, way to say that I was uh, not correct psychologically. So. They gave me the pills and it didn't work and I found cannabis and it did work. So it's helped me mentally uh, during that period and later on when I've had injuries and what have you and other things. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a, a great painkiller, but it kind of takes your mind off it and makes you a bit sillier. So it kind of cheers you up. <laughs> uh, you can laugh at yourself easier. It's good to be able to do that. Most certainly. So as far as it being a benefit to me, um, yeah, I'd say it has been. 
It's not killed me. It's got me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'd be interested to delve into all of that. But I remember when I read this uh, Guardian article about you, it said at one point you were a roadie for The Clash. Was that when you were younger and sort of before you got heavily involved in the seed scene? Well, I grew up kind of my teen years were in the 70s and I'm a Londoner. So I was very close to the whole punk scene when that came about. And uh, I used to hang around the back of the 100 Club and other venues like the Nashville in London and various other pubs where bands were playing. And, you know, this whole this whole punk thing seemed like a new wave. It was guys around my age who were a little bit older who were um, you know, dressing in odd clothing, um, were rebelling against society. And during the 70s, we had a big depression then particularly amongst the working classes. And uh, there wasn't much else to do but go to gigs and jump up and down and act the fool, you know. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. And some of these bands, uh, I started helping them with their equipment and they're doing a bit of roadie work, just really donkey work, pumping uh, big Marshall stacks around and various other uh, items for the, for the public address system they wanted to set up in whatever, you know, hall or university or pub all over the UK. So I kind of worked as a roadie for a couple of bands. The adverts I worked for for a while. And then uh, I worked for uh, a couple of gigs with the Pistols. And then when... I went to the States uh, in 1977. I moved to the USA and the clash came over in 1980 and found me in San Francisco at one of their gigs. And then they asked me to work for them on the US tour because I was just about to join the US Marine Corps and they talked me out of it. (laughs) I did did a few gigs with them across the States and then I ended up going down to New Orleans because uh, Lee Dorsey, who was supporting The Clash on that tour, had invited me down there because he had an auto paint and fender shop. And uh, he gave me a job spraying cars, which I wasn't very good at, but kind of mucked along and then got a job in Old Man Rivers with some honky-tonk down there as a security at the door. Did that for a while. It was a New Orleans adventure and came back to New York worked for a band called a rockabilly band called Levi and the Rockettes. And they, they played CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, Lone Star Cafe. Um, this is going back uh, ways. Anyway, I was kind of mixed up in the music industry from a perspective of somebody who worked security, worked backstage security for The Clash. Um, and front stage too, to stop people climbing on the stage <laughs> when the band was on the stage. <clears throat> and there's some really crazy events, uh, not least one at the Santa Monica Civic, uh, where um, I saw this guy getting impaled on the one of the four by twos on the buttress, the wooden buttress at the front of the stage, and it kind of turned me off the whole thing. I, 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 I didn't like crowds anymore so we get away from that ended up coming back to the uk eventually and stayed here for a while worked in a 
the British wine factory of all places for nine months and then decided to take off to Asia once again, bought a car and drove through Europe, uh, ended up in Crete, uh, got a job as a minder for, America, for an American property developer and ended up, him, him and his uh, missus uh, took, took me over to uh, Bangkok. And uh, yeah, one thing led to another. The guy, the guy was crazy. <laughs> and uh, I ended up in Hong Kong for a while back in 1980, early 1980s. Uh, and traveled all over Asia doing various smuggling runs. And uh, worked for a while in the entertainment industry in Hong Kong. Uh, usually in the uh, martial arts kind of action movie area, as in Bloodsport, uh, did Bionic Ninja and all these kind of B or C class movies. <laughs> Some of them are just hilarious. <laughs> Go on to YouTube and Google Bionic Ninja <laughs> and you'll see me back in uh, 1980, is it five or six, jumping around in Kowloon Park or in some con container port out near the new territories in Hong Kong. That was uh, crazy, crazy days back in Asia. But all the time I was traveling, I was always looking for the best hash or the best weed. And sometimes it came with seed. So I always thought it was a good way to uh, get cannabis around the world was to be able to be a purveyor of seed, somebody that could find something that was different, or if somebody was trying to make something new, they might use it in the mix. That's so fascinating to hear that, you know, the whole while you're always looking for the best hash and the best seeds. Were you collecting seeds that you would later sell, or was it more like you were collecting the experience that would allow you to later sell the seeds? I think... What really opened the door was the internet with Weedbase, you know, which came up was a, was a, a site where, where growers could communicate breeders from around the world. It was just pre-overgrow. Um, guys from that site uh, set up overgrow around 2000, I think it was, 22 years ago. And uh, then it enabled people you know, with a like mindset to uh, communicate internationally. I'm going to go back inside because I'm bloody shivering out here. I don't know. It's dropped to about 12 centigrade, man. Oh, wow. That is chilly, isn't it? So I guess then I would be interested in asking, what was it that stimulated you to think, you know what, I'm going to start selling seeds myself? Well, I... It wasn't until, I think, 1985 um, when I got into some trouble over a bit of hash. I, was, I had a fiancé who was in Holland, and I would regularly visit her. And, of course, I'd go to a coffee shop, and I'd pick up a piece of hash, and I'd bring it back to the UK with me, you know, after the visit. And I think it was about the eighth trip this Springer Spaniel stood in front of me and then sat down and uh, gave me this really stoned look from this customs agent at Harwich, you know, because I was on the boat from the Hook Van Holland to Harwich. 
and they had a customs check and they found some hash in my jacket pocket, as always. Uh, I would carry a bit, but not enough to assume that I was uh, intending to supply anybody. It was just kind of personal. So that ended me up in jail because I refused to pay a fine or do any community service. Anyway, it was a terrible jail experience, and I thought, I've got to do something about these stupid laws. So what do you do? Get a Kalashnikov and a bomb and run around acting like a terrorist? Nah, I don't think that's going to work. You know? you know, you become a target very easily. So I just thought that cannabis is a beautiful plant. Most people have only heard bad news about it. Uh, it's been portrayed as being some sort of evil. Um, let's get it growing in, in, in thousands of gardens worldwide, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of gardens. <laughs> so how do you do that? If you get it growing and then people see the benefit of the plant, they use it, maybe they use, they eat the seeds, you know, or maybe they use the flax, maybe they... They, uh, you know, make a medicine out of it. Maybe they get high on it. It benefits the society in some way or another. But society isn't going to know that unless they see the plant growing or they have the access and the ability to be able to grow that plant. So what do you do? You have to give people that. So you have to have the seeds, the ability to distribute them, and you also, it helps to have the education and the know-how how to cultivate plant uh, as well as you can. So what do you need? You need a website to explain that so people can interact. So we did that with ICMAG. And uh, the seeds, you need a seed site. And a lot of our policy, well, my policy from the start was... The main idea was to get people growing. It wasn't to make lots of money from people. You know, so the impetus was from the start to give people a good deal on the seeds, make sure that they're not crazily priced, if possible, unless the breeders are, first of all, pricing them so high. You know, then obviously you've got to make a cut on top of that. But, uh, and then giving away kilos of free seeds along with the orders uh, on condition that people would share them with others. And this is what happened. So for every order that went out, it wasn't just for that person to grow. It was intended for somebody else as well. So instead of one grower, you get maybe two people kept to, you know, their pledge of spreading the seeds. <laughs> So it seemed to work, and over many years now, I think the cannabis industry has grown exponentially. It's, it's huge now in comparison to what it was back in the 70s and 80s when I started out getting involved with it in one way or another. That's brilliant. And did you ever have like a conscious thought, so to speak, that like, hey, this journey I'm on, I may not be the grower to change the world, but I could play another role and help change things? Or was it? did it never occur to you that the ripples would spread that wide and you just sort of thought you were doing your own little thing and it wouldn't cause the effects it did? 
Well, yeah, I, I always enjoyed growing. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. You know, and I, I love having plants around me. But to do it well and to be a breeder, you've got to really, you're kind of tied to one place. You know, generally, well, you would be. You'd have to, unless you're one of these jet-set breeders who can do everything over the internet, you can even feed your plants every day. You know? But no, I haven't seen so many successful situations uh, with people that try to automate their whole systems. Generally, you have to be in one place all the time. And even if you go on holiday, you're worried sick that when you come back, all your plants are going to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> So I know, you know, the, the mentality of a grower and a breeder. So I, you know, I do grow a bit, but, but not really to the extent that you would need to grow to be a breeder. I mean, people like Sam Skunkman think you need to grow out 10,000 uh, plants for selections um, to be any, any sort of uh, respected, considered respected breeder in the first place. And who has the facility to do that? I think more people do today than they did 10 or 20 years ago because of the, the uh, decriminalization and legalization in some parts of the world now. But, you know, still most of the world is, is growing uh, in an illegal light to a certain extent. And you have to take this into account. You can't just think that, oh, it's, it's legal in the United States, so... You know, you can be really lackadaisical with your own security. It's not a good idea sometimes. Maybe I am because I've only got three plants. So you know, it's kind of tempting fate, but <laughs> uh, somehow you've got, to work, you, you've got to do something against it. But, yeah, people are growing more today than ever they did. And hopefully I, you know, I was instrumental in, in aiding that somewhat in the past wasn't just me there's there's been a lot of lot of other people who've been distributing seeds and have a similar mindset and it's a way of getting back at the authorities because now we have seen legislation um, hit home you know in favor of cannabis legalization and uh, you know decriminalization worldwide and and hopefully that will continue throughout all the Western nations and then the rest of the world uh, accordingly. It's, it's a very slow progression, I must say, over my whole lifetime. And I've seen it go from bad to worse to better, and it's getting better. Now, in the UK now, I, I really don't think the police are concerned as long as you're not causing a problem with it you know, or you're making a huge business out of it, <laughs> or you've got 250 stoners knocking on your door within a 24-hour period. <laughs> I mean, on that topic, in a sense, do you feel like you really paved the way for people like, say, the Attitude Seed Bank, who are now arguably the biggest seed bank in the world? Yeah, well, I think in some respects, um, I've, I've kind of been... Uh, at the, at the head of the industry and been the one that's had his head banged against the door uh, a few times. Uh, I, I kind of feel knocked out, or I did. It, it, it was quite a shock 
in 2013, I was in a, I had a house in Subic in the Philippines. And then I got told by my sister's brother, who was kind of our caretaker of the house, that there were several guys with long guns surrounding the house. Yeah. Long guns, I mean rifles, you know. So I'm like, oh, what's, what a, what's going on? So we waited for the knock on the door. There was a knock on the door. And they wanted to take me to Manila. It was um, the Bureau of Immigration. And I, I hadn't a clue what this was all about. I've been living in the Philippines since about 2006, seven, and uh, had a family there, had children there, had my life there, everything. And suddenly they wanted to put me in this uh, detention jail. So they drove me for a couple of hours into Manila and dumped me in this really awful dump. <laughs> dumped me in a dump that smelled like a dump. And, um, yeah, there I lived for two and a half years. Um, after 10 days of being there, they tried to kidnap me and do what's called an extrajudicial rendition uh, by um, trying to force me onto a plane to Los Angeles uh, from Manila, Nino Aquino International Airport. I think it was Terminal, Terminal 1. Yeah. And of course, I, lucky enough, I was informed what they were attempting to do by one of the other prisoners there. Um, he said that, yeah, they'll try and do this to you. You need to resist and, and you know, don't need to get violent, but you need to try and stop them from shipping you over to the States because it's totally illegal and can only be done with your consent. Because being British, I'm not an American subject, so I shouldn't be subjected to American law, the long arm of the law overseas. Their homeland security that seemed to operate outside their homeland. <laughs> so how did you manage to foil this plan? What happened? Oh, it was, it was a comedy of... It was just a comedy. <laughs> You say the comedy of errors, I don't really know, but uh, they took me there. And then before I went there, uh, I mean, I had, back then I had my back problem was a lot worse. I had, I've got this from doing some weight training back in the 90s and overdoing it. I pulled some muscles and graded some bone in L1 and L2 vertebrae or something in my back. So um, I had this uh, enormous back problem when they put me into this jail and so I was taking quite strong medication for it and so when they were carted, trying to cart me off to the airport I took a double dose and then I went to the airport and so I felt no pain at all and I, I had the attitude that I didn't care and I was very stoned and I just said to them you know this is illegal um, you can do treat me as a punch bag or whatever you like, but uh, I'm not going to put those handcuffs on. I put my hands above my head, and then they stood on a chair to try and reach because they're quite short, uh, the, the guys. Uh, and uh, then I moved along, and they couldn't reach, and we had this argument about them trying to put the cuffs on. Uh, but eventually I said, look, I just want my lawyer, and uh, it's obvious to me that this is not 
being done right judicially. And I managed to talk them out of it without too much uh, wrangling or any wrestling or anything. They kind of worked out, but then they took me back to this detention jail, uh, Camp Bagong Diwa in Bikutan, uh, which is kind of like a huge uh, police camp. 2,000 plus police surrounding you, uh, all living in barracks. <laughs> so, so it's not easy to get out of that place unless you've got some sort of SWAT team and a, a couple of helicopters. <laughs> so I think I read in the Guardian article that you ended up spending like about two and a half years there or so. I was interested in asking like, what was that experience like? How would you compare it to other jails you'd been in? And as a follow-up, did it change your outlook at all? Well, it's not as if I've done a world tour of jails, you know. I think I've only been in two in my life. That was one in Norwich for a month in 1985 in England. And uh, then the two and a half years in the Philippines in Bikutan. But yeah, that, was, uh, that place was something else. I mean, it wasn't a traditional Filipino jail because the majority of the people in there were actually foreigners. It was a foreigner's jail. So you have people from all over the world in there, in all different types of conditions, physically and mentally. Uh, you had a mixture of guys that were thrown in there for various types of alleged crimes, you know, uh, from as small as their girlfriend making a complaint that, she, that, that he called her a bad name, you know, <laughs> to some guys that... Uh, involved in, uh, you know, kitty fiddlers and nonces and people like that, you know, and then murderers between that, uh, con artists, rapists, you name it, came through that place. It was, uh, it was a human criminal menagerie, <laughs> yeah, to put it bluntly. And I spent most of my time in my bunk reading every book in English that I could lay my hands on. That was about it. Because I didn't really want to mix and associate too much with the other prisoners. I kind of kept away as much as I could. It was kind of it was open in in some respects because the guards weren't interfering all the time. They pretty much left the prisoners up to controlling themselves. So the guards just uh, were checking the gates that you weren't allowed to go through or you were allowed to go through at different times. They weren't too intrusive. Uh, I only had one guard that tried to be a little bit aggressive towards me at one time. So it could have been a lot worse. And what was it like in terms of when you finished your sentence? What happened then? Did you go back and live with your family in the Philippines or did you go straight home to the UK? Well, it, I never had a sentence, you see. I never went. If I, I never went to court and was found guilty of anything. All that happened was the United States put out an indictment in the state of Maine, saying that they wanted me in connection with uh, international uh, trade in cannabis. Well, it was only the seeds, actually. You see, but in the United States, uh, the seeds are the same as any part of the plant. They can say. You know, they can say you're an international trafficker, illegal trafficker in narcotics, even if you are a seed salesman. And this is all I was doing was 
I was buying seeds from Americans and selling seeds to Americans. And I was doing it from the UK, which is a perfectly legal place to do it from. Uh, because in the UK, there, there is no laws against buying and selling of cannabis seeds. So what happened eventually, I mean, I didn't want to leave my family over there. I tried to, to be able to stay in the Philippines because I thought if I went back to the UK, I would automatically be uh, uh, transported to the United States or that there would be, you know, this, this, this uh, extradition hearing uh, or there would be a trial. And uh, so it did happen eventually when I did return. There was, the, the United States came after me after I was back for eight months in the UK. And uh, they took me to court. And after a year or so, the court said, no, they can't have me because there's no dual criminal criminality. The law is different here in the UK on seats as it is in the, in the US. So they can't extradite me for something legal in the UK. Uh, to somewhere where what I've done is illegal, which is in the USA. But since I don't live in the USA, since I'm not an American, uh, you know, the, the, it stands in British law that they can only extradite you uh, to another country if you've broken a similar law in your own country. You know, if, if it's, it's within law that you are operating illegally in some way or another which I wasn't. Yeah, in fact, I was just kind of living in the Philippines, <laughs> semi-retired. And, you know, my breeding project then was, was making more kids and just having a family life. And I had a, I've still got a, a few hectares down on the Sulu Sea there uh, full of coconut trees and just trying to live a, a more basic life away from the mega city madness of the rest of the world, but then the rest of the world has the long arms of the law that can reach around and grab hold of you and screw your life up for the next five or six years. And that's what they did. I had a lot of loss of family life. Uh, I missed my kids for many years, although they could come visit me when I was in jail. But then I left the Philippines. I finally... Um, they allowed me to come back to the UK. And I think going back there and talking about other people within the cannabis industry, um, I was locked up for about two years in that jail. And then the British Embassy came to see me, uh, the consular attache, and he came along with this quite portly man who, was, uh, who had flown in from Bangkok, who was part of the consular attache group over in Bangkok. And the first thing he said to me is, you know Howard Marks, don't you? And I said, yeah. So, well, and he winked at me, you know, did you know Howard Marks? And I thought, yes, well, well that's got, what's, what's that got to do with things? And after that guy left, over the next six months, the British Embassy couldn't do more to help me. They actually got this one guy on my case he was half Filipino, half English, this young young fella, to push my case forward uh, so that I could finally um, go back to the UK. Uh, 
And to do that, I had to drop two cases in the Supreme Court I had against uh, the Bureau of Immigration over there because I brought cases against them. And they said that they won't, they're not going to let me leave the Philippines unless I drop these cases in the Supreme Court. So that took about six months to do before finally they dropped the cases and then they allowed me to deport because I had a good case against them. But I would have been there forever waiting for it to come up in the Supreme Court. So what's the point? I got out of there. I'm still on a blacklist, so I can't go back there unless I clear it with the Philippine Embassy here in London and with the, would they want me back? And if I go back, they think I'm some sort of cannabis kingpin. Yeah, this is what was said. The, uh, the Filipino DEA um, consider me to be some sort of kingpin. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to admit, if you know Howard Marks, not hard for them to confuse that. While we're on the topic, did you have any cool or interesting stories of spending time with Howard at all? I think I met Howard the first time was I was very young. It was out, out in Asia, in Hong Kong, back in the 80s. Um, but then he became quite visible on, on the whole weed scene with the Mr. Nice stuff that came out and the association with Ben Dronkers and, uh, of course, uh, Shanti Baba or Scott. Yeah, so I've known all those guys on and off for quite a few years. We all kind of revolve in the similar circles on the internet within the industry, or did, and uh, occasionally we get together and party. On the rare occasion that we did, it was... Uh, you can't, I can't remember half of it because it was so intense. No, no. Uh, that was the way it was. Uh, it was. It was sad because I think Howard went the year I finally made it back to the UK and I was not in good shape. Uh, that's it. I mean, the last couple of, a year, year and a half, I've really been concentrating on my own health and getting back in shape because, you know, sitting in a prison in Bangkok for for getting on for three years isn't isn't doing your body much i even tried to work out and slipped in the cat shit and uh, injured myself so that kind of turned me off but yeah um occasionally i might have a chat with one or two and i've been thinking lately it might be more interesting to just go and interview them so that's what we've been doing uh putting together some sort of uh, travelogue, uh, a video, podcast, chat thing, or whatever you want to call it, going to interview these different breeders in different parts of the world. So it seems like I might be doing more of that uh, coming along. And I haven't done this type of work in 20 years. I, did, I put out a couple of DVDs, I think it was back in 2003, 2004, one was uh, about the kiff from the Rif, which was about the hash trade in Morocco. And another one was with Bubble Man over in uh, Jamaica making bubble hash. That must be nearly 20 years ago. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of an old profession that I'm trying to pick up again and, and uh, see if I can be an interesting interviewer, basically doing what you're doing. So that, that might be interesting for me. 
I've always admired um, certain people uh, who do that as a job. And I thought that would be a really, really cool job to be able to do, to be able to travel and experience various cultures, meet different people, and just keep talking about stuff that interests people. You know, the, the, the viewer is, is, is entranced by what you're saying, isn't bored to tears, you know, trying to make it interesting. <laughs> That's fantastic. You, you fully answered one of the questions I was going to ask you, which I was going to say, can we expect any more of those videos? But that's great to hear. And you mentioned Bubble Man. I'd love to quickly ask you, I feel like there's been a notable decline in the amount of people who are interested in bubble, especially in the advent of like BHO and all these other types of concentrates. How do you think we can help educate people that like really high quality bubble is still some of the best concentrate you can get? I don't know. I mean, you've got to kind of look at this not as a cannabis connoisseur. You've got to pull back and kind of look at it as the general public. And then make a comparison. I mean, a lot of people do always to the alcohol industry. And so if you could try to compare, say, bubble to the alcohol industry, what sort of booze would you have? You'd have very fine, expensive single malt or something like that, wouldn't you? And out of all the people that drink alcohol, how many of them actually are really into super expensive, fine single malts? You know, it's a very small percentage. So yeah, there's, it's interesting. Bubble, you know, for me, has always been a, something nice. But on an everyday basis, I fear that I would just be knocked out. So <laughs> I stick to my kind of mild uh, Moroccan hash, and it keeps me going. <laughs> That's brilliant. We've had other guests in the past talk about uh, many years ago, you know, say the 90s when concentrates weren't as uh, widely distributed as they are now. People talk fondly about smoking with Sam the Skunk Man, and he would have, like, you know, some of the only full melt bubble did you ever get access to that? Do you ever have any recollections of uh, events like that, some memorable hash smoking with people? Sam's always been that way. You know, when you when you uh, see him or you first meet him or you see him on a regular basis, he'll always have, usually has this uh, very fine dry sift that he makes himself. He's very particular. He won't take anything from anybody else i've never seen him smoking anybody else's gear and uh he uses that he was the first guy that i came across i don't know how many years ago it was that told me about cbd he said now smoke this and you're not going to get high off it but you might feel a bit better <laughs> i <Like>, what <laughs> It's an interesting concept, isn't it? It was this like non-alcohol beer. This is stuff is like non-alcohol beer, Sam. And he's like, he's like, no, no, no. It's a, uh, it's just CBDs in there. It's not. Uh, he's got all these numbers and names for all these different terpenes, and God knows what. You know, just blinds me with science sometimes. The guy is so knowledgeable. Um, but yeah, he knows what he's talking about. And sure enough, another 10 years later, it's all over the place. People are, it's, it's, it's a panacea, it's a therapeutic thing, it's in all sorts, it's even in shampoo, you know. <laughs> That's brilliant to hear. I mean, while we're on the topic of Sam, 
who was some of the first people once you you know you started IC Mag? You thought let's get the seeds out there. Who were the first um, breeders whose seeds you were distributing? Was it like Sam's stuff or was it other people? Uh, I think one of the first associations I had was with Mal from Nirvana Seeds. And uh, because we share a name, uh, uh, it was kind of interesting. I like the guy. He's kind of all over the place. He's not, he's very different to say Hank from Dutch Passion. Or, or Ben Dronkers. He's the guy from the streets. Uh, interesting guy, his mouth. So, yeah, I, th- I made an association with Mao first and started uh, vending. The first breeders I took on were, was him with his seeds. That must have been, I don't know, uh, late 90s, I think, from Holland. Yeah, the first time I started doing it and I put a website up. I think it was called seedsdirect.to, based in Tonga. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then I had a one-page ad in High Times, and it started snowing through the mailbox. There so many people were ordering. It was hard to keep up with the orders just off the, off the get-go. As it turns out that I was one of the only people in the world i mean there was a couple of other um seed distributors online i think mark emery was doing it in canada and heaven stairway in canada also a place called laughing moon uh, that that was about it so i've i'd kind of tapped into a niche market uh, that, of, of cannabis seeds that people we're really trying to get hold of, you know, all these new varieties that were coming out and older ones that uh, they couldn't get locally and they could only get internationally. So, yeah, it started snowing orders and trying to keep the administration together and the work, uh, the workers, uh, you know, to micromanage all that stuff. It was quite an accomplishment for me to be able to get hold of, you know. It took a while. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's going to take forever. <laughs> but I, I find it much easier without having employees uh, these days, uh, just minimalising my life, um, making things smaller instead of bigger, taking less on instead of more on, being a moron. <laughs> That sounds like a good approach given the, uh, you know, how busy you've been in the past. What was it like as the business grew? You know, were you, do you remember, were you just picking up a lot of sort of European Dutch breeders? And, and if, if so, do you remember when America first sort of came on the map in your mind as like, Hey, I could, I could get a lot of USA breeders too. And who were the first? Yeah. Well, I, I looked at it from a global perspective because I know that this plant grows just about everywhere. You know, um, or it can do, it has the potential to, if you give it the right environment, of course. And people were creating wonderful indoor grow environments, tropical or otherwise. I mean, I, I live about, I think about seven, eight miles away from Kew Gardens. And I could just go there and walk around the tropical house and imagine it was full of cannabis, you know. <laughs> 
So I know that it, you can create environments like that. And my grow history, I kind of a bit rubbed off from my grandfather, who was one of the top guys in the Royal Horticultural Society. And he used to grow wonderful chrysanthemums and breed them and win all sorts of trophies and medals and plaques for it. You'd see the silver on his mantelpiece. It was all from chrysanthemums. <laughs> but, but yeah, I live in an area um, where there's a lot of gardens and there's a lot of stuff growing. It's a very green area of London, right near Bushy Park and Richmond Park. So always as a child, I was always interested in plants and how they grow. And then it led to me being thrown in jail and me wanting to get back at it. And uh, so I thought I'd be a seed distributor. And it was a fun job too, you know, and running around the world looking for rare land race varieties or anything somebody was making in a different neck of the woods. Basically, you don't, you, you try and have a look at how this person was making the seeds, whether or not they were a, a closet breeder or whether or not they were doing it properly. So I, I'd have fun traveling all over the world to go and visit these people. Often before I bought their seeds, I want to see how they actually made them. Because God knows they might just buy them from someone else and sell them to you. Yeah. It might just be a middleman. I got interested then in all the different varieties and seeing how people would grow them in different environments and being able to share this knowledge because these people, obviously, they're living in a very secure environment. They don't have many associations with other people because they're doing something that needs to be kept secret. So a lot of them, their only outlet has been through the internet and being able to communicate with other like-minded people anonymously is important for that. And they've been able to do that now for how many years have we had ICMAG going? I think not 18, 19 years, something like that. I think we've been going since 2003, 2004. So they're able to do that through the site. And it's a good way for people to mingle, you know, to uh, make friends. Uh, there's a lot of pe a lot of friends that have been made through the internet, and a lot of those people will never have met each other in real life, and perhaps never will. But they've still got a friend online. <laughs> yeah, that's a brilliant point you make, and I guess I would be interested to know: was there ever a point where you realised how big IC Mag was getting and the influence it was having? Like when you're going around checking these different breeders, could you feel that this was getting a lot of momentum, or was it still just sort of relatively seeming like it was controlled? Ah. Uh. I don't really know. Um, like I say, I'm not educated particularly that far uh, academically. or you know, I haven't been through a college or a university. So maybe that's my excuse to say that, uh, yeah, I saw things moving forward, but I just wanted to do what I always did, which was travel and meet new breeders and growers and either get new seeds made or buy seeds that were already made by these breeders and then bring them back and then the whole distribution 
uh, outfit would take care of the distribution. I wouldn't have to do all the emails. I wouldn't have to do all the work setting up the websites, anything like that. I'd just go around the world and meet people, buy seeds, trade seeds, grow plants, whatever it takes. That's all I was interested in. Um, so I was reliable upon you know, a core of people back in the UK to keep the whole distribution up. And of course, when I get into trouble, like I did in 2013, um, the people that were working for me and with me got the heebie-jeebies naturally because they'll think it's like dominoes. <laughs> I'm going to be next. <laughs> so obviously uh, work kind of slacks off or you're not there to monitor it. You're stuck in some stinking jail in, in 40 degrees Celsius under a tin roof in the Philippines. So you're not functioning the best that you can either. Um, with your brain while we're on that topic do you think that when you read people online who maybe you know have some gripe with you maybe with some seeds they bought or whatever do you think that like that essentially was the circumstances in which that happened like maybe it happened while you're in jail and like it was out of your control sort of thing or what's your thoughts on that ah, yeah I mean the whole mail order seed industry is it's it's full of pitfalls and and difficulties of many levels from the buyer's perspective and also from the seller's perspective because you know for years i went through working within that industry and you know with with the way, way that the mail is uh, having po boxes that certain postmen figure out there's there's money going to those boxes so so orders disappear <laughs> you send orders out and they come back to you six months later uh, after you've resent the order twice you know it's it's a crazy world that whole mail order world and nothing is perfect and nothing works you know like clockwork it's uh yeah, we've, we had all sorts of problems. And then, of course, you got staffing problems because you're in a cannabis industry. Most of the people working with you are stoned anyway. And occasionally people make big mistakes because they're stoned or they forget things. I mean, I've done it myself before. So it's not very accurate sometimes because of the nature of business, I, I guess you could put it that way. Yeah, certainly. I guess... Just to, you know, put it to rest, to anyone out there who ever has had any issues, you know, sort of accusing of, like, any sort of issues with seeds or, like, replacing seeds or anything, are you saying there's absolutely no truth to that? You know, it's just the, the general inherent issues of the system. No, I don't know. There's all sorts of this industrial espionage as well, isn't there? There's other seed companies that will try and build themselves up by putting you down. Uh, you get fake uh, customers sometimes who demand that they ordered and yet they didn't or that they didn't receive their order and yet they did. You should have seen back in the heyday of it, some of the chargebacks uh, we used to get were horrendous. You know, 
looking at five grand a month or something, people that receive the seeds or whatever it is that you're sending them and uh, then say that they didn't because you don't end up with a signature because you're sending it through regular post and there's no actual proof that the person received it when perhaps they did or perhaps they didn't. You, you never know. Uh, this is the whole thing with the international post. It's so unpredictable. It can work nine times out of ten or it can only work one time out of ten. It depends where you live and what happens on the way. <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly. So, I mean, if we loop back to what we are talking about before, you're going around to different breeders' houses, sort of trading seeds, getting a feel for the land. Well, is there anyone's grow or bud who like really stood out in your mind as like memorable where you were just really blown away? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different breeders, uh, a lot of different characters, and it's difficult to, you know, to put them in a list of who you think is better or worse. But um, who stands out? I guess breeder Steve more than anything, a Canadian uh, uh, breeder. He had a company called Spice of Life Seeds. A very interesting guy. Very smart. And, uh, yeah, I used to go, I used to drive to Switzerland. He, he, he got himself set up with a factory in Switzerland for a while. And I used to drive out there and see what he was growing. You know, he was really into making this variety called Sweet Tooth. And uh, several others, uh, a lot of them were Canada-based varieties or USA-based varieties that he come into contact with and made seeds from but yeah there was, there was uh, one of the more interesting breeders i'd say would be breeder steve and of course sam skunk man as well you could sit there and you could ramble on for hours just interesting stuff if you can understand it you know? <laughs> because it's quite technical a lot of the time but yeah if if you want to look at people like him yeah it's uh somebody that's been eclipsed by this plant all of their life and had something to do with it in one form or another has made a living out of it. So it's part of the industry. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I was also going to say we were lucky enough to have um, had Breeder Steve on the show. He's definitely a, a very smart guy, interesting character. And I remember, he, I think he actually told a a story about being on an autobahn with you in a fancy car or something <laughs> going very fast. Yeah. Yeah. We had some funny experiences sometimes. Yeah. I used to have this very fast car and I used to drive it over to Switzerland and commute to Amsterdam in it. And there was quite a few adventures associated with its travels. <laughs> Suitcases full of seeds and, <laughs> Getting pulled over by the, uh, who was it? By the Belgian police, wasn't it? No, just before I went into France from Belgium. And then them finding a couple of Samsonite suitcases full of the seeds that I just bought in Amsterdam. Because I used to go on a, a couple of times a month. I'd go through all the breeders in uh, Amsterdam and just buy a whole bunch of seeds and then drive them back to the UK rather than risk sending them through the post. And, of course, I'd have to travel through Belgium and France 
to get to the Channel Port to get to uh, Calais before I could take the Channel Tunnel over to the UK. And, yeah, they nabbed me once in Belgium. And it, in the diff, it ended up with them taking all the seeds that I had in the back of the car. Uh, they detained me for, I think, about four hours and just let me go after searching the car uh, quite well. I think they were looking for Class A drugs. They were surprised to find seeds, you know. <laughs> and, and the funny thing was, as I drove away, I'd, before I'd stashed half of spliff in the sunglasses uh, capsule just above your head if you're driving that car. And I popped that down, and they hadn't even looked in there. So I had half a spliff. I was driving away from the Belgian police. had just taken, I don't know, about 50 grand's worth of seeds off me. And there's me smoking a spliff, thinking I'm lucky to get away with that. And I, I said to them when they took the seeds away, what do I do? They said, I'll get an attorney. I'm thinking, geez, the attorney's going to cost more than the seeds did. <laughs> That's brilliant. You know, there's there's all these pitfalls. I mean, if you're if you're a businessman and you're you're trying to distribute cab cannabis seeds around the world, it's a lot more difficult than than if you're into doing distributing shoes or plates. <laughs> there's a lot more pitfalls, particularly legally. Just driving through a country with something that's legal in the country you bought it from and the country you're going to. That's what happened. Yeah, look, that's interesting. Sounds sounds stressful. Did you find it stressful or it was all pretty laid back? No, I'm quite used to you know, the customs organizations around the world and the thought of being detained and all that. So you kind of preempt these things. You might do a trip 10 or 20 times and think, oh, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, in the back of your mind, that there is a potential that you could come unstuck, but you kind of you work that into the risk factor and you either take the chance or you don't. And if it happens, at least you prepared yourself psychologically uh, for the event. So you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I thought about this before. This, this was going to happen sooner or later. So you can kind of eat that. <laughs> <laughs> and not get too freaked out about it as if it's a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, sure, 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 sure. I'm always interested to know, I got, I have this like theory in life where it's like any job you can think of, like some of the biggest challenges, like it's not the things you would think about, it's other stuff. So I want to know, when, when you were doing the Seed Boutique and IC Mag was sort of at its peak, what were some of the challenges that like the general public was probably not even aware of that you were dealing with and you're like, you know, it's calling, causing you frustration. You're like, oh, if people knew, it would be like, make my life so much easier. Like what made the job challenging? I think it's drama. You know, if you let too much drama into your life, if the people that you're in regular contact with daily have ulterior motives, if they're uh, pretending to be something they're not and you're actually fooled by it and you've taken people into your confidence, perhaps you shouldn't have, and then it, it can all fall apart uh, quite quickly if you don't feel that you have the security within your own business that you thought you did have before. 
And this happened uh, because it, it's not only the business, but the people that run it, they have their own personal relationships, of course, and uh, their interactions with other people. And it's the success of the business is to a greater degree, I think, based upon them being in harmony than anything else. Because if you don't have the chemistry of the people that work for the business correct, then the business isn't going to do well. It'll pull itself apart. And this started to happen because uh, I broke up with my partner, uh, Nikki, and we, we had a partnership in the business, uh, both of us, equal partnership. And then the manager that I had at the time, this Roger Thomas Clark, otherwise known as Plural of Mongoose, was kind of the manager of the mail order, and they became an item. They became a couple, and they moved in to a house with each other. And then they tried to take the business off me, to scare, to scare all the people that were involved, uh, all the other employees, uh, with me, with threats, veiled threats and otherwise. And it became nasty. It, it, it's if, you know, this business that I created with Nikki has helped, of course. Uh, suddenly, it wasn't the beautiful business that I thought it was, that somebody else had become involved, and it turned kind of nasty. And we had certain events of, of violence, certain events of uh, extreme emotional distress amongst the people involved. And, yeah, it... It was like a, it turned into a bit of a beast. Uh, I didn't enjoy it so much. Is this the, uh, the context around that infamous video of I'll Eat Your Mind? Yeah, well, that was <coughs> kind of made as a gag. Um, I think if you see in the beginning of it uh, or at the end, I'm saying cut because I asked the guy to film it. I told them that, yeah, I'm going to chastise uh, Teflon in front of the camera because he was in cahoots with the mongoose and to film it because it might be interesting. People might want to look at it. So it was kind of, I, I was, had my mindset in the long good Friday that there's some movie, <laughs> some scene in a movie and I was very stoned at the time. I thought, okay, let's, let's give uh, Teflon some grief. But not to the point of chucking him out the window. I never had that intention. It was just kind of a, a bit of drama that we played out. That was all that was. And then Mongoose, ah, okay. Mongoose got hold of it and then used it. thought he, he was using it as something really bad to throw at me and put online. So, yeah. It entertained a bunch more other people, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, interesting. We had a few listeners who asked about sort of just your general reflections on having worked with Mongoose. I guess by sort of what you've said here, you sort of like, I don't know, would you say you regret it or it's just one of those things where you like learnt a lesson? Ah, sometimes you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and say that you've been naive, you know, that uh, you've let people into your life that haven't been beneficial to it, you know, haven't even been neutral, that have been bad. Uh, your association with those people has not ended up well, put it that way. 
So, yeah, you can have regrets. That what's the point? It's in the past now. Um, as far as whatever Mongoose has done, I think now he's um, he's sitting in a, I don't know, is it a nursing home or, or a jail in New York, still waiting on his sentencing. And he plea bargained down to, I think, just being charged with one case. And he's uh, he's looking at 240 months, I think it is, in jail. Uh, that would be minus whatever he's served. Well, reading through the papers, because as a trial goes on or, or a case goes on in the USA, you can actually follow it. And one of my ex-employees has been following the case of the mongoose at the moment. And, of course, he's accused of uh, being instrumentally involved with the Silk Road website that would sell every type of drug imaginable. Uh, there was a few kids that ordered with their mum's credit cards and died of heroin overdoses or something through that website. So he was involved with something that I would never touch um, and now it's, you know, he's trying, I think he's trying to delay his sentencing as much as he can because he's had a fall from his bunk in jail. He's, uh, complaining constantly about not having a pen and other things. Uh, I've been reading through the case lately, what's going on with him and they're trying to get him sentenced, uh, but I don't know. Anybody in the prison system, you know, I have a kind of a little feeling for because it's no fun. Uh, maybe it's something to do with karma with him because I see, I've seen him do so many other people wrong. Maybe it's coming back on him now. We'll find out. I think he's sentenced to, supposed to be some sometime around the end of September coming up there you go we'll have to follow that one to see what happens i think at this point you know you've been talking about negative associations everyone is waiting to hear us talk about res you know he's a focal and polarizing figure in the cannabis community and especially in history what was your relationship with him like and reflecting back on it how do you view it now and i guess you know, whether you want to answer now or later, we'll, we'll go into the, the whole incident with Dutch grown and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, Rez, well, as you read through, you spend hours looking at a forum site and you read through it. Some members stick out more than others for whatever reasons. Maybe they use language that is outrageous or maybe they've got some sort of humor that you can you can jive with. Uh, Res always seemed kind of interesting to me. And he, he had a kind of a following of people that either they loved him or they hated him. You know, he had this, he got a reaction out of people. I think because he was always very abusive to everybody. Maybe that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was. He has some sort of pizzazz, you know, um, and 
he seemed to know a bit about breeding and he was making seeds eventually and he wanted an outlet for them. So I suggested, hey, you know, I've got an outlet. Why not? So like any other breeders, I started vending seeds that came from him over the years. And generally, they were quite popular. You know, he had his detractors and he would vociferously attack them too on the boards of Overgrow or ICMAC. Sometimes I think I had to ban him. I even had to ban Rez at one point um, for a short period of time. But yeah, he seemed like, before I even met him, he seemed quite a, an open and uh, interesting character. Or maybe it was just a persona he'd created for use on the internet. I, I wasn't to know until I met him, of course. And what was that like? When I did meet him, he was a very slender, um, kind of haggard-looking dude. Like he'd uh, he'd worn life on his face a few times, and yeah, he he was interesting. He was he was uh, conversationally quite lucid, and we talked a lot about different things. And over the years, built up a relationship as a vendor and him the producer of various seeds. And we, he, we would allow him to go and build up his release or whatever it was, and then we'd do a pre-release on Seed Bay and get some seeds out there. People would grow them, and then if they turned out well, then others would want to buy more. So we had this ongoing uh, kind of business deal with him. He would. It was very difficult to pay him. You know, so you could only pay him in cash and, uh, you know, you couldn't just send it like we with the other breeders or whatever it was. Most of them, you could just pay them bank to bank or whatever it was. They didn't want to pay for trail. Uh, yeah, and I think one time he was on his way back and he got caught with some cash or some seeds got caught. He was sending coming this way and the cops roped him in. Little did I know about it at the time um, that he'd, he'd already had, I think, two strikes. He lived down in Florida and he'd had a, some sort of cocaine uh, charge. Some, he had some federal charge against him. Anyway, it was back in the times, I think, when it's like three, three strikes and you're out. It's this whole thing. So... If he got busted for something else, then they could throw him away for a, for a very long time in jail. Now, this is what I think led to him turning informant and grassing up a lot of people over there like Chemdog and Dutch Grown and a bunch of other people that the police pulled in and then squeezed them as they do. And so it goes. And I was one of the ones that got turned over for better or for worse. I mean, they probably, I heard that they'd gone to, um, after they took Rez down and then turned him into an informant, he told them about Dutch Grown and they'd gone over there and they'd seen uh, my name on seed packets, whatever, wanted to know who's this gypsy Navan. And of course they'd handed me over as a, their UK distributor. 
and at that time I was out in the Philippines. I was living there. I was resident, and so that's where they they. I was not as if I was hiding. Uh, I was being quite open. I didn't think I had anything to worry about, really, but uh, obviously I I did, and it ended up with me being detained. Excuse me, I've got the burps. No problem. You, you strike me as someone who's sort of, um, I get the vibe you've sort of made your peace with it all. Do you still hold him quite personally accountable for it all? And as a follow-up, like, do you have any thoughts on the fact he's like back and active on Instagram? Yeah. You know, I could be bitter and I could feed off some sort of hate and uh, want to, you know, get some sort of revenge or whatever it is. But I, I can't muster up the energy to bother. It just seems like a, not a very productive endeavour to go after that. I'm not really into tearing people down. If he's come through it all and can manage to eke a living out of life, I think he's got more to worry about the people he grasped up in the States than me. <laughs> I'm a long way away. <laughs> you know, we all have to pay for our sins at some point, I guess. And, uh, you know, I always liked Ray, so I thought he was a bit of a crazy guy. He was always popping pills, too. He was always on these pharmaceuticals, whatever it was. But uh, he visited me a couple of times when I was in the Philippines, and I got along fairly well with him. So I didn't have, you know... I didn't hate the guy or I don't really get into hate anyway. So, and okay, well, I'm, I'm going to say that this guy has to go to jail and do, do 20, 30 years for me. <laughs> I mean, who's going to do that? <laughs> Honestly, is he going to go to jail for me? Uh, they came after me anyway. And in, in the diff, they couldn't get me. Um, I've got a clear, clean slate now. Uh, they dropped the charges in the court in Maine, and I've got the proof, that I've got the original uh, court documents saying that there's no charge against me and it's been dropped. But it really screwed my life up for a long time, cost me an arm and a leg. It uh, led to a more simple life, which, which I'm quite enjoying, to tell you the truth. <laughs> That's interesting to hear it's come full circle. I like that, I like that. Do you, out of curiosity... A lot of people say that um, Rez did a lot of his work out of a few tents, which people try to criticize. But I always thought, isn't that more like impressive? Because he, he is regarded as having some pretty pretty bloody good work. Have you heard anything about that? Did you see anything like that when you were with him? No, actually, I never saw anything Rez had ever grown because I never really visited New York much at all since the 1980s. I was in New York in the 80s, but no, I, I never went to see any of his guys, but I did knew, know some people that did, and they said they weren't really a, a large concern, to say the least. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like with breeders again, you know, some of, very few of them, hardly any of them, do it what's considered the right way by growing out for selection tens of thousands of plants, you know, or at least a thousand. They can they only can do it within the space that they have. So if they've got a closet 
They can still make seeds. Like you can still make children in a council house and you can make them in a mansion, you know. <laughs> yeah, fair point, fair point. Interestingly, you were one of the first people to pick up Bog. What was your friendship with Bog like? Uh, Bog was always entertaining, wasn't he? In a kind of risque, bawdy, bordered on kinky way, the way he would describe how he would uh, play with his female plants or whatever it was. <laughs> I just liked his, his, his broad sense of humour because I know that humour is a good way to teach people. You, if once people are laughing, they're more likely to hang on every word you say. So Bog had the uh, kind of skill to write down stuff that would make you laugh and wince and kind of cringe or whatever it was. He was an interesting character just in the way he wrote. So I got after him that way. And then, of course, I said to him at one point, I used to send him free seeds because he would always grow them out. And uh, make some glowing reports sometimes. And I said, why don't you make seeds from the seeds I send you? So he decided to become a breeder. And that's how he started Bog Seeds. And the rest is history. <laughs> well, he's not with us anymore. I think he died last year or the year before, uh, not too long ago. Um, I hope he's resting in peace. And he's got plenty of Bog Bubble with him. <laughs> Certainly. He came over to Amsterdam a couple of times as well. Uh, he used to be a paramedic, uh, so he'd have quite quite a bit of uh, life experience, I'd say. Anybody who works in that profession would do. Um, yeah, and he, he did some things with me, like we drove through the German autobahns at speeds in a fast Jaguar, and I let him drive, and then I drove. And we went over the mountains and yeah, it was, it was kind of idyllic. We had a good laugh together. It's a good character. Sounds brilliant. And that's what it's about, personalities and characters. You know, that's what I enjoy most, uh, getting around to meet these people. And, of course, the, the lovely plants that they're involved with generally as well. That's an interest too. But uh, yeah, being able to travel and meet people, why not? You can always stay at home and grow, but that's the options you have. Generally, I choose to uh, be on the road. But if you're raising your own kids at home with your missus, you don't want to be absent too often. So at this stage in my life, I'm spending more time around the house, I suppose. Yeah, certainly. And uh, yeah, I didn't mention before, you know, rest in peace, Bog. Another character who have to give a rest in peace to who you have a history with Subcool, who passed about a year before Bog did. What was your relationship with Subcool like? I mean, there's obviously that notable story, him on the forums when you got arrested. How do you reflect on the relationship you guys had? Subcool was another guy that was out of the early overgrow days. I think he was in weed base even before that. What was that variety? He was connected with Jack's Cleaner. That was it. He was all into the Jack's Cleaner thing. And uh, I got to know him a bit online. And then I think at one point he got into quite a bit of trouble. And I said uh, to him, well, why don't you come over to Europe? You know, maybe if it works out, if you're the right person for it, I can give you some work. And 
uh, I'll let you stay in a place there when you come over. So he did. Eventually, he came over. And at that time, it was around about, it was the first cannabis cup that I had a stall in. And I was advertising the stash boxes and, of course, the seed company. And I kind of got him to help out with that, um, trying to set it up. And after he'd been over for a short while, um, he brought another friend of his over, Blunt, Blunt, I think his name was. I don't know his, his real name, but he called him Blunt. And he also asked if he could stay at this place. I, I was renting this house at 43 Zadike. Um, it used to be owned by Morris de Hund, who is a famous hash smuggler. And it was, it was a crazy place with a lot of different bedrooms and different levels and what have you. And at that time, uh, I was given, because I was writing for Weed World magazine, they gave me this big plastic bucket full of... Uh, various types of hash and weed. I think there's 30-odd types of weed and maybe the same again, uh, different types of hash. And Subcool and Blunt sat down with me and we were trying to judge. Uh, so I was giving them a smoke of one variety and then something else. And these guys were always talking about um, harder drugs as well. They were always talking about uh, uh, pharmaceuticals um, I forget the names of them, but pretty strong opiates or, or synthetic opiates that they were into. Like Percocets or something? Yeah. Uh, is it Vicod Vicodin? Yeah, Vicodin. Yep, that's a strong one. Vicodin and some others. Um, I, I can't recollect. There's nothing I've really been into. Those sort of things are for serious pain relief. And these guys didn't look like they were in serious pain. <laughs> anyway, uh, suffice to say that after I think a, a few varieties I tried, and I just, it's knocking me out, so I had to go to bed. And I woke up the next morning, and Subcool was running around saying there was his friend had died during the night. And I'm like, what the hell? is going on you know so sure enough this blunt guy had passed on in the night for whatever reason i mean i'm not sure but you know i could i could have my guesses uh, so this was the the notable incident with uh danny boy oh danny that was his name yeah danny boy or Blunt, he used to call it. Maybe that was his on name, on, online name was Blunt. But uh, in, in the house at the time, where staff from my company in the UK, uh, there's about three different ladies, and they're all freaking out. And it's not every day you wake up. And there's a dead guy in the house, <coughs> and you don't even know the guy, you know? So I don't know if you've seen some of their movies where, what's the name of that movie I saw once, where they had a party and then they woke up the next morning and there's a dead guy in the house. It was just like that. And it kind of freaked everybody out, knocked them off whack a bit. 
And uh, Subcool was just really losing it. And I was trying to help him out and calm him down and realize that he was agitating the women as well, uh, the ladies there who were very emotionally upset. So I thought, best if, if we get him a hotel. So I gave Subcool 400 bucks and said, let go get a hotel because we can't deal with this right now. You know, we're busy as a company trying to do this cannabis cup thing. And this emotionally is upsetting the whole house. So it's better if you, if you get a hotel. And he was, uh, you know, I'm not there as a psychologist because his buddy died. You know, for me, it was, it was, I was trying to deal with a, the whole business thing of, of keeping the uh, stall open cannabis cup and doing what we intended to do while we were over there from England uh, yeah it was it was difficult let's put it that way maybe I was a bit brash maybe he was a bit too emotive about it I don't know how long he'd known the guy but it was as if he'd, he'd lost a brother it wasn't good yeah I think you know reflecting back on the chat I had with Sub I think uh, he did largely view Danny as a brother um, that's interesting to hear your perspective, yeah, because I think when he said it, he sort of viewed it as being kicked out of the house, but of course, you know, we didn't really know about the effect he was having on the other housemates, which is obviously a consideration. Yeah, was, uh, to me, morale was important, and we were trying to do something there that we worked out months before, and uh, to get it done, you know, we couldn't be mourning this guy and be walking around moping because this guy had died in the house where he didn't even know the guy anyway. So it was kind of removed. It was sad, but it was kind of removed for the fact that this guy was nothing to any of us. It was just somebody that showed up the day before, literally. <clears throat> Some of the girls didn't even know that he was in the house in the first place. Certainly a very unforeseen event for sure. How did and then how did that all pan out after that? The event finished and you just ended up going home. Did you have any like follow up investigation or they just accepted it as an accident? Well, there was me also a bit concerned because I had this huge uh, cache of uh, samples for the cannabis cup inside the house, and I don't know what the other people there were, what what type of recreational drugs they might have had. For their own use, I've no idea. Um, and there was quite a compliment of people in the house itself. So, yeah, there was a concern for that. But it turned out that there was no investigation or anything like that. Uh, they said that he had some sort of heart attack, uh, something to do with his heart. And uh, that was all I ever heard about it. And then well, the next thing I knew was subcool. Uh, bad-mouthing me, saying that I'd acted in a bad way or whatever, I don't know, uh, basically telling some lies as well. So maybe he felt hard done by by my reaction to the whole thing. It's sad, but that's the way it is. Sometimes shit happens and maybe you don't act the coolest on the block with it, you know, the way life goes. Yeah, look, certainly sounds like a very complex situation i imagine that there would have been a lot of competing interests at mind i mean you know obviously a rest in peace danny boy and sub and bog 
while we're on that topic, you know, I guess around that time was sort of around the time when we had the original incarnation of Brothers Grimm. And I feel like you don't really hear much about Sly. Mr. Soul's still around and doing his thing. But do you have any recollections about Sly at all? Did you ever deal with the Brothers Grimm? Yeah, I was. I think I was this, the second vendor ever to offer their seats for sale after Heaven's Stairway, Richard Calrissian. Um, he was their initial vendor, and then they wanted somebody in Europe. So... I think it must have been 2001 or something. 21 years ago, I became a, a vendor of Brothers Grimm Seeds. And they were very interesting. In fact, they're very interesting to a lot of Dutch breeders um, who've taken them since then, and made, made uh, their own varieties or crosses, you know, female seeds and various others. You know taken Cindy 99 and various other varieties that Brothers Grimm have put out and created uh, new hybrids with them. So, yeah, it became with me, not it became transatlantic, not just going one way, sending seeds to the States. It became receiving seeds from USA breeders and then showing them to European breeders. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. And and did you ever have any specific communications with Sly? And I guess the reason why I ask is I've heard some people describe Brothers Grimm as Sol was, you know, really good at the marketing and Sly was doing more of the breeding. Did you have any info on that or not really? Um, I never met Sly, but I did meet Mr. Sol. He came over to the UK, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago nearly. And uh, I gave him a he rode over with me to Belgium uh, in the car uh, because I was doing my regular commute to the Amsterdam shop. And he came with me on one occasion. He seemed like a nice fella. I can't remember the actual conversation at the time. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I did ask him at, at the time if it's okay to make F2s or whatever you call it out of uh, – Cindy 99 because we had so many people asking for stock and we didn't have any more Brothers Grimm stock and it didn't look like he was going to have any because I think he was working in the engineering field and he had a job in Europe and so he couldn't concentrate on, on growing back in the States like he had done before with uh, Sly. Um, I've since learned that Sly has passed away in recent years so, uh, Mr. Soul is the only representative now of Brothers Grimm out there. And good luck to him. He seemed like a, a nice chap. Uh, I didn't really know him for that long. You know, it was just a car journey more than anything. This is the thing with the internet. You, you might know people for years online, but uh, when they're sitting next to you in a car and you're on a four or five hour journey or whatever it is you get to know them uh, much better that way i prefer the personal meeting with people that's why i've always uh, made an effort to get around the world to meet various breeders different times not just to buy stock just to see see how they make their seeds you know yeah brilliant brilliant something i wanted to ask you a little bit unrelated i heard that uh, you were friends with 
Kangativa, and when he got out of jail a few years ago, he went to the UK. Is that true? Can you give us an update on him if you know anything? Who's Kangativa? I guess that answers the question. You're not sure. No, he's the um the Australian grower who's like associated with Mullumbimby Madness. Um, he was working with Neville on the Grail Haze a little bit. He's yeah, known a few Aussies over the years. I think they don't go by their online names, so I might have known him as somebody else. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there you go. Maybe, maybe I'm just trying to think of how how else you might know him. Do you do you remember Wally Duck at all, or not ringing any bells? Uh, yeah, yeah, Wally Duck or, or Donald Mallard, as we know him. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, he's a mate that. I, yeah, from back from the early overgrow days again. Um, an Aussie, uh, a, a bush grower. I think he's up in Queensland or somewhere. Up there in the Table Mountains. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, he's a good mate. He's out and dealing with all the wildlife and this, that and the other. And he was quite descriptive. And we got chatting and, of course, we shared seeds. And he'd send some seeds over uh, that they got over there. And I would send some more from over here, over there, and he would grow them out and make more seeds and then send them back. And this is what happened with many breeders around the world. Um, you, you share the seeds with them and then they want to share what seeds they make with you. Uh, if you could sell them or if you can give them away, uh, at least they're being distributed and plants grown from them. Uh, so that was their mindset, which is mine too. If you've got seeds that are just going to waste away, they just give them away. They try and get somebody to grow them. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. I uh, I wanted to ask you, who in your mind is like one of the unsung heroes of the scene, be it a breeder or just a community member who you think like just doesn't really get as much attention as maybe they merit? I think there's a, a lot of up-and-coming breeders um, that – will come to the fore in the future as, as the old school sort of die away and we, we can see that happening already uh, within uh, the can cannabis subculture or, or industry or what you might call it so it's been in prohibition mostly over the last uh, 80 or 90 years uh, yeah there's some have come to prominence and others not but I think there's a whole new batch of people making seeds now. There's there's new breeders up and coming. Um, I could throw some names around, but I don't think that's really the point because these these guys uh, are the product of what we've created in uh, the online communities uh, many times. Uh, we've got people that have grown up we're, we're in the early teenage years with uh, Overgrow and then they've come on to IC Mag and they've become breeders in their own right. And now they've got their own Instagram accounts and this, that and the other, their own legitimate seed companies. And it's it kind of helping spawn the industry has always been uh, one of the things that I feel most proud of if there's anything to be proud of within this industry um, helping others and having something there where they can communicate with like-minded people whether it's on a social level or a business level 
or a matter of interest in the plant. It seems to work. You can even go in there and have a chat. You can go in there now. I don't know, the latest software. Uh, now we've upgraded um, from the old V-Bulletin software to the new stuff. Uh, it's a much better site to navigate. I find it interesting, but we don't get the um, we don't get the traffic that we used to get because there's so many options now out there. People seem to like Instagram and Facebook. I'll try to keep the site going as long as I can. It seems to pay the bills at the moment. Yeah, people talk like they're very fond about um, the forums, but Instagram still seems to dominate in terms of the numbers. Do you think that there there might be some sort of paradigm shift? Because Instagram seems to be increasingly banning cannabis accounts. It's hard to advertise. Do you think there might come a time where the forums rise back up and become like the main point of communication? Uh, I don't know. I I don't go to these sites. Uh, there, there are people called Gypsy Nirvana on these sites, but they're, they're all doppelgangers or fakes or whatever. Somebody's even coined gypsynirvana.com. I thought I had control of that domain, but I must have lost it through non-payment of something or other. And um, so there's somebody out there with, with the domain name in my name selling seeds that's got nothing to do with me. So... The internet can be good and it can also be a bloody crazy place uh, when people nick your identity and go around making money with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, certainly. And you just answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which is that, yeah, the current website looks pretty unanimously like they're scamming people, but I had a suspicion that you weren't involved in it. Well, I guess it's kind of flattering in in a kind of perverse way, isn't it, when you think of it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly. We had um some interesting fan submitted questions. I I would love to know the answer. Someone wanted to know the backstory behind getting the genetics of the citral or the bubblicious. Do you remember either of those two specifically? Oh, jeez, I'm only running a four eight six kilobyte hard drive in this brain. You know? So I've got to pull up that information somehow. I've got to go back to the nineteen eighties. There's one of these weird modems I use to connect, and it makes all these odd noises, these clicks. <laughs> uh, so it was Citral? Yeah. And? Bubblicious. Bubblicious. Hmm. Wasn't Bubblicious something that Mao put out? Yeah, I think, it, I think they were both from Nirvana. Yeah, as a form of bubblegum. Yeah. Because they're, the Dutch breeders uh, or seed makers were all into knocking each other off big time, you know. I think Mao had this uh, particularly potent um, skunk male that he'd got from Sam and took most all of the popular clones or anything that won a title or a cannabis cup or whatever and pollinated them with this particularly uh, strong resinous male and seemed to produce seeds that 
in many cases were even better than the originals as far as uh, potency or even yield was concerned. So just by making these hybrids, uh, shaking around the pollen from this, this very good male enabled him to start a whole seed company out of it. Uh, a lot of the Dutch breeders worked it that way, you know, and I mean, I've, I've heard in the past there's ongoing uh, court cases and, and uh, all sorts of consternation between various companies using the names of seeds uh, of, uh, of somebody else that's created them, like Simon from Sirius Seeds and the AK-47. Mal started selling something that was called AK-47 as well. And, of course, Simon didn't like it. So they brought a court case or they, they get involved in it. It almost gets criminal, uh, almost to the point of violence amongst these people. Um and eventually, I think Mao changed it to AK-48. Yeah. So he, he started selling it as AK-48. So, yeah, amongst a lot of these Dutch breeders uh, or seed makers, um, it's not that they all produce their own special varieties. There's some very good varieties that go around, and they make hybrids. Uh, off of all of them uh, to a lesser or greater extent. Brilliant, brilliant. And another question we got asked by a listener was, do you specifically have any recollection around when Nirvana did their remakes of some of the classics, like the Northern Lights and the White Widow were like two notable ones? Yeah. Well, I know, I know Mal, he, he would go for um, what is the correct genetic material to create something. Um, he started out with Bernard at Positronics. So he knows the value of producing something that the public will like, the growing public will like. And uh, I'm sure he would have put together something that was popular. You know, there's been a few, I think in the past, there's been a few releases of seeds that have not come up to expectations uh, because they haven't been tested or, or whatever. But I think Mao always tried to get tested and looked at me as a good outlet for testing when I, I got the website together. So we would do, you know, test grows. If I would get a batch of seeds, something coming up new, I put them out to growers on the website, they grow them out and we'd be able to see them and in live action, uh, you know, how they would grow out. They put pictures up and then other people would buy on that. Whether or not they'd be all different types of phenotypes and some stunted and some mutant plants, <laughs> then people wouldn't be so keen on buying them, would they? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, one of the questions we got asked by a few different people was like a lot of people in general have this sort of fond memory of some of the African lines you sold. And I guess I'm wondering who did those come from and uh, do you have any seed stock in general laying around or it, it's all sort of gone throughout the years? Yeah, it, most, mostly it's gone because I've moved around a lot. I've been in places that I didn't plan on being for, for, for a long amount of time. And, uh, 
I haven't been able to concentrate on securing and keeping the seed stock that I've had in good repair, uh, so to speak. Like when I was away in in the Philippines in jail, uh, my seed stock wasn't kept refrigerated, and it it was just left in an office with uh, employees that were kind of lackluster and a bit worried about themselves getting in trouble for operating this business. So obviously germination ratios dropped off and yeah, uh, eventually you know, I came back and I had, you know, loads and loads of seed stock, but the majority of it wasn't worth or couldn't really be sold as anything other than, badly germinating seeds so yeah i lost a whole fortune in in the stock that i'd accumulated over many years because of my incarceration yeah wow that's uh that's a bummer to hear i uh, i can only imagine all the beautiful things that would have been there otherwise one of the listeners wanted to know they asked a little bit about if you could tell it, I, I'm actually not 100% familiar with this. So it's like, it, maybe you know about it, maybe you don't. They said, can he tell us a little bit about the Hayes drama? I think maybe they're talking about the amazing Hayes you gave out. Is there some sort of story behind that or not really? No, there's been so many Hayes hybrids and Hayeses over the years that I've come into contact with. Um, I can't even remember half of them, to tell you the truth because Hayes seems to have got into so many different uh, cultivars and, and crosses and hybrids, whatever you want to call them, that it's difficult to quantify. Uh, what do you think of when I say Hayes? Well, I know the roots of it. Supposedly, it was something that came from the Hayes brothers. It was mostly made out of a Colombian of some sort some South American origin. And it was passed on to Sam. Sam brought it over to Europe and grew it out. And it didn't always grow true, apparently. It's got a lot of different phenos and you have to search for the good one. And, you know, it's a bit variable. I've heard people say that occasionally it had intersex traits, so Maybe, you know, it depends on how somebody grows something out as well. That can affect all of that. So it's difficult to work out exactly what the haze is or what it was. It's kind of in folklore now almost, and there's people in contention about it and will forever argue about it, you know, about Neville's haze and about Sam. And we've had ongoing discussions uh, that go through hundreds and hundreds of pages on IC Mag about the uh, mysterious haze. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, it um, it's still just so much discussion around it. That's interesting to hear. It's the effect of the plant. I think that more than anything is uh, most cannabis people smoke. I think these days or consume or be. I don't know, however they take cannabis, most of it is more of uh, something that relaxes you, that makes you lower in consciousness, perhaps. Uh, whereas the haze has kind of a, the opposite effect. And it is very 
extreme, I think, uh, to most cannabis users because the majority have never even tried it. So that's the interest, you know. It's kind of, uh, what was that? Uh, it's like the absence of, can- of cannabis. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I like it. There's an allure about it for sure. Well, if you could only pick one strain to smoke for the rest of your life, what strain would you pick? Oh, well, whatever I say, people will disagree with me because they prefer their own. But as far as hazes are concerned, um, sometimes I think it's a, it's a little bit too much on the edge. I wouldn't pick a haze. Uh, but I'd pick something that was a nice hybrid, like Cinderella 99. That would suit me. Something that's fast, grows indoors, very fruity, wonderful kind of dank kind of fruitiness, pineapple, papaya fruitiness that Cinderella 99 has. It's almost, um, uh, it's almost like a candy. I remember the first time I tried any, I sent one of those old film cases for uh, by Mr. Soul, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, ever since then, I've been a Cindy freak. So, yeah, that does me. I could su- survive on Cinderella 99 for the rest of my days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Really functional, lovely stuff. So i got another question sort of similar to the last one, and this one was submitted by one of our listeners. They wanted to know, if you had to start growing today and you had to buy seeds off one of the breeders that currently is around, what seeds would you buy if you could only get one pack? Oh, jeez. God, that's a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> because there's so much variety and there's so much good out there. It's like, uh, say, a kid that really likes chocolate, and you say, all right, What of all these chocolate bars do you like? Well, they're all chocolate. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's a a hard one. Very hard one. Uh, First of all, I'd I'd look at the breeders that I kind of admire and would stand behind their product. Um, And they are not just something that's made conveniently from another breeder's seeds and relabeled and called something else. I'd look to be growing something that was maybe original, maybe getting nostalgic, looking back, growing one of the mainstays of the, of the current industry, maybe just growing out a skunk one or growing out a Northern Lights or something kind of not too fancy, doesn't have a, a name that incorporates all sorts of weird gizmos. <laughs> That's brilliant. Another question we got was, um, what was your recollection of Tom Hill and his lines? You sold them for a while. Do you have any fond memories, any specific memories? <laughs> Tom Hill, he's a roller coaster of a person, really. Uh, great guy. But then, I mean, there's a lot of people wouldn't say that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of an enigma and tends to come on my site sometimes in one mood and then gets along with most people, then comes on in another mood and pisses off a load of people and ends up get, getting the moderators to ban him. Well, he get, gets himself banned through breaking the terms of use or whatever. But 
Yeah, I don't know. Many years ago, I got a package in the mail and it was all these seeds from somebody called Tom Hill. And I didn't know where they're coming from particularly. And then he kind of hooked up with me on the website and said, yeah, I sent all these seeds over and you can just give them away or sell them, whatever you want, you know. So we sold some and we gave some away and and uh, people seemed to like them. And then he became more vocal on the forums and, I don't know, a lot of people liked his style. But, yeah, he used to, I think his, his, his thing was rum and coke. And maybe when people drink a lot, uh, they tend to get a bit sloppy online. And, yeah, he was uh, kind of informative, interesting, but at the same time insulted to a lot of people. He put it across in he – didn't, he didn't coat it with any sugar. <laughs> Straight to the point. That, that's uh, kind of – people like that. If, if it, somebody comes across sometimes a bit crude – and makes their point with passion. So Tom was very passionate like that. And I think I met him, I invited him to come out to the Philippines years ago, and he came out. We went out and had a couple of nights out on the town together, got absolutely blotto, had some good times, seemed like a nice guy, really. Interesting. I think he grows up in the mountains. So he's, been, he's kind of like a mountain man. You know, <laughs> foothills of the Rockies or something. We've got a few stories together, and um, yeah, interesting chat. Now, there again, it's about personalities. You see, you've got some wild men of cannabis, and I guess Tom is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I wanted to ask, were there any particular standout Cannabis Cup experiences? I'm sure you've been to a number of them. Anything kooky or wild that we haven't spoke about? Yeah, there was one year. I think it was the second year I had anything to do with them. And maybe the last uh, was uh, I wanted to enter Cinderella 99 in, in the Cannabis Cup. So this was a big deal for me, the first time I ever made an entry. I cleared it. I think Mr. Solar said, look, we want to enter this into the Cannabis Cup. Are you pleased? Yes, no problem. So we, we were waiting for the authorization, and they needed to come and pick the weed up. And the guy came over from the Cannabis Cup, and, you know, in a roundabout way, they told me that if I wanted it to place, I would have to pay a certain amount of money. So uh, I thought that was kind of corrupt. And that led led on to us wanting to, you know, every year do the, the Growers and Breeders Cup. We wanted to do our own kind of mini cannabis cup just amongst the growers and the breeders of the plant. So we started this 420 Growers and Breeders Cup. So the 20th of April every year, um, we put a show on. Some years uh, we employed uh, tribute bands. We had an ACDC tribute band one year, a big venue, and I used to fork out a lot of lot of dough to try and get this thing happening. But I'm not very very together with organisation and stuff like that. 
So in some years it didn't really work out, but there was still a lot of entries and a lot of people showed up for it. So it just financially was a bit of a drain. So eventually it just became um, maybe 50 or 60 growers and breeders would show up and then they judge each other's weed. That was the last time I think we had it just pre-COVID. We haven't had one since, but there are plans to put one on for next year. And, yeah, we, we started it in a way because I thought the cannabis cut was corrupt and we thought it might be more interesting, particularly the, the growers and the breeders on, on International Canographic to have some sort of event every year where they could get together and meet each other. And I think we've done it in Amsterdam mostly, and for a couple of years we did it in Barcelona. So hopefully we can get it on for next year again, and I can go along and pass out on all the different varieties. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I've got to ask and follow up. Which cannabis cup was that, the one you wanted to enter the Cindy in? Oh, geez. High times, yeah. Ah. There you go, there you go. We had one of our listeners ask about the Gypsy Nirvana collection of seeds. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, yeah, ever since the get-go, I've had some favourite varieties that I would put into my collection. Either they'd be rare land race stuff that I've found on my travels or they'd be from different breeders that had certain seed lots that I thought were particularly good, and so I'd put them in the collection. So there's been several varieties that have gone through the collection over the years, and I don't think I have any of them left unless unless there's uh, ones that are still up on Seed Bay or Seed Boutique, and they would more likely be newer seeds because I've told them... uh, we don't want to try and sell the older seeds anymore because they're just not good. So the older varieties, obviously, um, stock uh, runs out, so we don't have them all the time, and so we have to introduce new varieties. But occasionally I'm looking around for something good to put into the Gypsy Nirvana collection, and currently... I can't think of anything. (laughs) That's interesting. Great. Someone wanted to know specifically, did you know anything about the G13 Incross or is that like a bit too specific? Mm. I know this uh, G13 plant, it was supposedly from some American government institution in in Mississippi, you know, this uh, folklore going on about it. And, what has been presumed to be the G13 or whatever. I think Ben did most with it initially. I think he crossed it with the hash plant, uh, the G13 hash plant at Sensi Seeds. Yeah, very famous nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, and it, that became known as the Mr. Nice, wasn't it? The Mr. Nice cross after Howard Monarch's G13 back cross. How would be an instrumental in me getting released from uh, Philippine authorities 
uh, in the Philippines back in 2016. Howard was an Oxford Don, and he met many people who are now heads of government and industry <laughs> today. Yeah, he probably sold them hash back in the 70s or the 60s or whatever. And he pulled some strings with the British Diplomatic Corps uh, to get, send one of the top dogs to meet me in the Philippines. And then after he met me, uh, the British Embassy couldn't do enough to help me get out of there. So I got out the year Howard died and I didn't get a chance to actually go and thank him. But I think he, he talked to the right person or pulled some strings to get me out of that that hellhole in the Philippines, that ex-Marcos era death camp that I was ensconed within and, and couldn't find a way out of for two and a half years. So bless Howard Marks. Bless Howard Marks, having a brilliant effect. I think that just about brings us to our quickfire questions. So I wanted to ask you, first one, what are you most proud of out of your career thus far? Uh I'm a proud father. Uh, I'm proud to have brought seven kids into this world and been able to support them. Um, I guess that's breeding. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as cannabis is concerned, I'm, I'm glad that I've introduced a lot of people to it and it's helped them in many ways. Uh, maybe there's one or two that have fallen by the wayside, but I don't know. It's the same with anything you do in life. There's always a risk concerned with it. And it's up to you to quantify that risk and whether or not to take it or not. And I've taken a few risks that weren't really in my favor and come a cropper in the past. But if you don't keep going forward and uh, pushing for what you believe is right, or if you're looking for change or if you're looking for a living, uh, the cannabis industry has offered me all that over the years. I don't regret anything I've done, really. You almost got me there. I was about to ask that, so I will phrase it differently. Although you don't regret anything, is there anything you wish you could have done differently? Uh, yeah, well, there was this guy, there's this online entity called John Lee Pettimore, JLP. And we had this plan to aerially bombard various parts of the globe with cannabis seeds, uh, with balloons, you know. And we were very into working out the whole science and, you know, the, the weather and, and this, that and the other, how we could like, invade various nations with plants that would grow from the get-go in the right season at the right time, you see, and just force cannabis on the rest of the world. Bit of a pipe dream, I must say. But, yeah, I'm kind of sad that we didn't explore that a little bit more. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Okay. So, next one is, what is the single best flower you've ever had? Um, it might have been the most recent one that I experienced uh, over in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago. Simon from Sirius Seeds offered me a very beautiful mimosa uh, bud. It's this variety that he has called mimosa, which was an offering and a gift. And, of course, um, it, it looked beautiful. 
and it was cured properly and it smoked like a dream. And that was the same day that I passed out on Soma's uh, bubble hash <laughs> Soma salad. <laughs> so you know, I have some weird dreams of that day being in and out of consciousness, whether or not the mimosa contributed to it or not. Uh, can't really say. I'm not that au fait with my own blood chemistry, perhaps. <laughs> That's brilliant. Sounds like a fun time either way. But on the other end of the spectrum, what's some bud where everyone around you was hyping it up? You're really looking forward to trying it. And then when you finally did, you're just like, oh, is that it? <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, because all various varieties of cannabis have some sort of attribute merely by being cannabis itself. You know, it's something. Um, and whether or not it's got 1% THC or it's got 35% THC on it seems to be a common denominator whereby people will judge how good or bad it is, but not from my uh, experience. You know, I've got just as high in some respects or even higher on cannabis that has a lower THC level than, than I have done on stuff that's not ether six, you know, and is it really all about becoming comatose? No, you know, you want to try and plateau out before you become comatose and enjoy a high. You, you don't want to just pass out. Or do you, you know, some people's, <laughs> some people's lives are so grim that just being under a chemical cosh uh, is a relief. So I guess it's horses for courses, as my mother would say. Depends what, you, what works with you in your own metabolism and what particular time you take it and what company you take it with. <laughs> That's it, right? Different strokes for different folks. So we're on a boat and I'm going to drop you off on a desert island. You can take three strains with you for the rest of time. What three would you take? First of all, the island would have to have a good water source and the soil would have to be decent. Uh, surprisingly, it's got everything. Got lots of coconuts. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of fan leaves that shade you. Well, I'd take the basic building blocks of what we've mostly got today. I'd take a, a very good haze. Uh, I'd take a, a really good skunk one and uh, maybe a Northern Lights 5. And you can make a lot of things from that. <laughs> I'll come back in 10 years and you've rebuilt cookies from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this I thought is it's a different one to what we normally ask people and uh, I wanted you to I wanted to hear your perspective on it. Looking back, what do you think were some of the best seeds you ever had available commercially? Yeah, I've 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 got. I had an interest in giving away uh, uh, certain varieties of seeds in the past because I thought that the ones you give away are the most important ones because they're more than likely the first seeds somebody might grow. So you've got to start it with a bang. So I, I remember I had this seed lot made once called called Who Who's Your Daddy? Yeah. <laughs> And basically what I did, I think I took a whole bunch of power plant and the clones, uh, you know, the top commercial clone at the time in Holland 
and I, I situated a whole bunch of different males around the room that matured and spread their pollen all over these different power plant clones. And, yeah, it, we called it Who's Your Daddy? Because we didn't know who the daddy was. We knew it was power plant. And then made a whole bunch of seeds, a couple of kilos of seeds out of that, I think, and just gave them away for eons. And just about everybody that grew them out was happy that they got a wonderful plant that you know, flowered fairly fast. It was a good yield and had nice terpenes to it. So, yeah, those are some of the more fun things that we've done in the past, giving away batches of seeds that I know are great. And you could probably sell them for a lot of money, but knowing they're the first seeds a lot of people will grow and to make sure that they grow something that they would really enjoy. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it. Not the answer I was expecting, but the answer we deserved. So, Final question we ask people, if I could give you a time machine and you could go back anywhere, any point in history, presumably to get either clones or seeds, where are you going to go and what are you going to collect? Oh, goodness gracious me. I feel like um, Phileas Fogg around the world in 80 days. Who's going to be my passepartout now and do the collecting? <laughs> Oh, if I was to go back in history, well, you know, um, the enormous Indian hemp trade that there was uh, amongst, I think it was the East India Company, uh, particularly in the UK and, and throughout the world. India was one of the prime growers of, of cannabis going back to the 17, 1800s. And to be able to go back to a time like that and peruse through thousands of plants in the fields and make selections and be able to bring genetic material from that stock back into the present. Yeah, it could be a kind of time tunnel episode at the very least. <laughs> That would be incredible, a brilliant pool to select from and a great answer in general. So I think that just about brings us to the end of it for this one. Are there any comments or shout-outs you'd like to make? Uh, no, I just wish that any viewers out there have an enjoyable experience with the cannabis that they grow during their life. And uh, for the ones that I've been instrumental uh, with helping in the past, in the present and maybe in the future, grow on <laughs> <laughs> brilliant sentiment so again one of the most prolific seed distributors in history the man behind ic mag seed boutique countless others having given countless breeders their start a huge thank you again gypsy nirvana for coming on the show oh thank you for having me and most flattered it's something nice to do this time of the morning toodaloo <laughs> Huge shout out to Gypsy Nirvana. And a huge shout out to you guys for making it this far. Joining us for the whole episode. As always, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you go check out our sponsors who help make this show happen. Seeds here now. You know them, you love them. Number one, all the hottest breeders, the latest drops at the best price. Check them out. Seeds here now. 
Likewise, Copet Biological Systems. You want to keep your garden happy, healthy, pest and pathogen free? Spidex Vital, Afiparam, you know, two killer products. Get your garden healthy and clean. Huge shout out to Copet, number one in the industry. Thank you for supporting the show. We appreciate you so much. Just like we appreciate our friend Simply Souvenir holding down the fort in the EU. If you're anywhere in the EU and you need some killer genetics, some killer smoking accessories, check out Simply Souvenirs. They got you covered, guys. Best customer service in the game. Hand-selected boutique lineup of both local and international breeders. You're not going to regret it, guys. Simply Souvenirs, huge shout-out and thank you. That's about it, guys. Make sure to go check out the Patreon if you're interested in supporting the show. Huge love from the Upside Down Library. This is Heavy Days checking out. We'll see you.